How'd so, that feel? That felt great to touch the record button button because I never get to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're here with Zach Bitter today. Uh, Zach, I mean, man, we, we could not wait to, to get you on based on some of the things that you've experienced in your life. Uh, you know, you, you've just been an incredible, incredible runner for a long time. But, you know, I want to go back, Zach, to, to where, where you were brought up, you know, where you, where'd you live, your, your, your family life uh, coming up. Give us some color on, uh, on your background. Yeah, no, first, thanks for having me on, Darren. It's, uh, it's an honor to be able to come on a show from, uh, you know, someone I watched play football when I was younger. <laughs> so it's, yeah. it was yeah, you don't have to say when you're younger. Hey, Zach, yeah. you don't have to say when you're younger. When you were man. much younger. Did you say you were a Packers fan? Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I grew up oh, in Wisconsin yeah. most of my life. So yeah, yeah it was, it was, I was before, before when we were planning this, when Darren first shot me a note, I, I quickly remembered his his first. I think it was your first career interception was against Brett Favre in the playoffs. Was it really? Yes, it was. <laughs> yeah. 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 yeah, so one. It was a good. Hates a lot of people. One he did, but he just <laughs> <laughs> he just meant it for me. Yeah, <laughs> that, that hurt my young soul back then. But uh, yeah. you you had a great career, so it's fun to watch that. And yeah, so uh, but yeah. Anyway, um, I grew up mostly in Wisconsin. I was actually born in born in Minnesota, but my family moved to Nebraska when I was not even two years old. And by the time I was eight, we moved to Wisconsin and I was there for most of my, or all my childhood for the most part. And then uh, high school and college, I spent my, my days in Wisconsin and uh, started my, what at the time was my uh, teaching career there as well before, before moving out to kind of focus a little more on, on training and racing and things like that. But you know, it was kind of an interesting journey. I was, I think like a lot of kids, I was kind of interested in doing sports and things like that. And I was just really fortunate that my parents, they didn't necessarily push me into any one sport, but they did uh, expect me to be doing something extracurricular wise. So what was that sport? What were those sports when you were growing up? Uh, I did a lot of just kind of like the traditional team sports, like uh, baseball, basketball, football, soccer, that sort of stuff. And I wasn't actually introduced into like track and field or cross country or anything kind of like that until I would say maybe I was about 11 or 12 years old was the first time I even kind of realized that was something you could do outside of just, you know, running was more just a part of other sports. And if you were good at that, that was kind of a good tool to have, but it was more of a, like a foundation thing versus something that you actually competed in. So, uh, you know what I always wondered though, Zach, I've always wondered, especially up in the north in north and you know running the cold oh no not, not just running in the cold but as a kid i grew up in phoenix and on the west side of phoenix and it was always hot and i understood you know going outside and it's hot and you're putting your practicing football but as and that's like at eight years old you're like okay i can deal with it. that's no big deal but to deal with the cold at seven eight nine years old and putting on a helmet up in in Wisconsin or Nebraska, how the hell did you guys do that at that age? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I think you just kind of get, you more or less get used to it if you're, if you're born in it and you just, that's what your reality is more or less. So uh, I think you just, it's a mindset thing to a, to a big degree. If it's, if there's snow on the ground and you're playing tackle football with your friends, it's just a little more padding when you get knocked over. <laughs> this is the way you look at it. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it, I guess. You know, my black ass would have wrapped up. I would have wrapped up in something. There ain't no way I'm getting out. 
<laughs> yeah, so it's it is different. It is actually I was always kind of curious about that just in general because the Midwest tends to have pretty strong cross country programs and distance running programs and things like that at the high school and collegiate level, but you know, they don't have that year-round kind of ideal training setting, but it, it definitely does cut a toughness groove in you to a degree where you kind of learn to run and you know when it's not ideal out there, you can you can hop on a treadmill, I guess, but a lot of times people who are running year round are pushing out into those below zero temperatures sometimes okay. in the winter. And um, I remember when I was a, when I was a school teacher, as I first started getting into ultra marathon, we had one winter where we broke the record for consecutive days that went below zero. And I think it was like <laughs> 78 or something like that. That's and, not a record I want to break. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's not a good record. Those are the ones you want to avoid. But uh, I remember during that time, I, I would usually get to school around seven 30. So I was running before, so I'd wake up at, like four in the morning and uh I'd finish up and I started thinking one day it's like you know the coldest part of the day is right before the sun comes up so if it's been below zero every day for the last 80 so days that means I've been running below zero weather for the last 80 days and yeah you get you get you kind of get used to a protocol I remember I'd wake up in the morning I'd open up my my phone app to see what the weather was like and the first thing I would look at was wind chill if it was like mm. you know like five below but the wind was calm I'd be like okay that's not gonna be too bad put a few layers on get moving it'll be fine but if it was like five below but 20 mile an hour winds I knew then I was gonna be in for a longer haul and in, on those routes you just make sure you go into the wind at the beginning so you're not coming into it at the end yeah, yeah. So I, I thought you were just gonna say on those days you just you just stay in bed you, you don't stay get out in of bed, bed. Yeah. <laughs> instead you said oh you just go into the wind at first so you said you played mul- multiple sports growing up and different sports true story when I was in middle school I asked my parents if I could do track and they said that's fine because I in my mind I was thinking I was a bigger kid in my mind I was thinking shot put discus that kind of thing and they said, no, that's fine if you want to do track, but you have to do running events. And I said, I'm out. I'm good. I never understood running just to run, but it sounds like you were drawn to that from a pretty early age. Yeah, kind of to a degree. I think in sixth grade, we did our, our my PE teacher had, we did a presidential physical fitness uh, challenge. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with that or how much that still happens in, in elementary and middle schools these days, but it was basically just kind of a battery of different kind of physical tests from like stretching to sprinting to pull-ups. Mm-hmm. And then the, there was this one kind of endurance component with that test, which is the one mile run. And I mean, I had a tiny little class at the time. There was me and seven other kids and we did this one mile run and uh, all my classmates were basically at the finish. Like we're never doing that again. That sucked. <laughs> and I finished it and thought like, you know what? I actually thought that was kind of cool. And it was, uh, I was better at that than I was all the other events. So as a, oh, wait, 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 so go back on this day. So what did you, do you remember what you ran <laughs> at that age? Oh man. I think the first one was maybe like a seven and a half minute mile or something like that. It was somewhere in the seven. I still range. don't run a seven and a half <laughs> minute mile. <laughs> There's no way, man. So you had success early and you said, I like this. Let's keep doing this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then when, uh, when we'd have like track and field day come around at the, I believe it was in the spring in, in middle school, uh, I started kind of gravitating towards the longer events, which at the time were like the 800 meter and the 1600 meter, I think were the two longest they'd have. And I recognized even when we'd go against other schools and it was more than just me and my seven classmates, I could still win the 1600 or still win the 800, but, you know, maybe get like fifth or sixth in the hundred meter dash or, mm. you know, fourth in the high jump or something like that. So, you know, as kind of a young kid, I started gravitating towards what I was good at and, 
I think by a year I got maybe a six flat mile. So I was able to shave a little bit of time off that first attempt. Um, but the interesting thing back then is training back then was just, you know, my mindset was, well, if you want to get faster at running the mile, you just go and run the mile as fast as you can a few times. A week. Right. So just run it more. I told, yeah. My, yeah, <laughs> I told that to my dad and he's like, all right, well, we'll just take you to the track a couple of times a week and you guys, we can, we can just run it as fast as you can and see where you're at. And, and that was kind of my entry to the sport more or less. So who was it? Was there someone, by the way, uh, Tyler, Tyler, glad, glad you could join us. Tyler just showed up. Thanks man. Appreciate it. Did you bring us a gift? Would you bring some low protein puffs, but uh, let's not deflect on why I'm late. No, don't start that. I mean, yeah. Nobody cares. I'm, no I'm, one cares, I'm late because we're in a meeting that Darren would not shut up. In, and <laughs> it went an hour longer than it should have because this dude just talked the entire time. Hey Zach, I was here on time. That's all I wanted. To say. Hey, but uh, let me ask you this, Zach, was there someone in your life at that time, a coach, a uh, father, mother that was in your life that, that was really guiding you through this, this process? Uh, you know, not so much in the sense of like a real structured mentality, which I think was actually good for me because it kind of kept me open-minded. It still wasn't even my favorite sport to do. I think my favorite sport to do was probably basketball until the end of eighth grade. And then uh, my freshman year in high school, I actually went out for for tackle football instead of cross country and realized pretty quick, I wasn't going to be the next Darren Woodson. So I <laughs> switched to cross country by my sophomore year. And, uh, you know, but I was, I was still more like, kind of like I said before, where my parents were very supportive of what I wanted to do, but they didn't necessarily try to guide me into any one particular sport. So I tried a lot of them. And uh, eventually by my sophomore year in high school, I think I realized that I definitely wanted to be focusing more on track and cross country as kind of the sports that I was going to try to develop myself in. And from there, it was just kind of gradually building to where I am today. So when you're making this decision, how much of it was driven by like, I just love running. And then the other side of it, how much was it was the competitive nature of it? Like, I just want to be the fastest mm -hmm. dude. Like, I don't care if I like it or not. I just want to be the fastest dude. Yeah, that's a good question. I think probably through high school, I just wanted to try to be the fastest. That was probably my big driver, the one that kind of kept me the most motivated. But uh, my senior year, actually in high school, cross country, I had a coach, his name is David Ring, and he uh, uh, was probably the first adult in my life who really understood the sport from the understanding of just like why we're doing specific workouts, you know, what the value in those would be. And then he also did it himself. So it was kind of this, uh, this kind of this new, this new idea in my mind where, okay, here's a person who not only is going to tell me what to do to get better, but he's going to be doing it as well with his own goals and things like that. And that kind of got me more interested in just the process as much as, you know, just going out there to compete. So when, when he was my coach in high school, that's when I kind of started getting more interested in training year round for cross country and track versus just, you know, getting ready a few weeks before the start of the season, kind of racing yourself into shape, sort of a mindset. And that was kind of a big, I think, step forward for me around that junior, senior high school years when, when I had him kind of guiding, guiding me, which, which I think set me up to, to be able to even consider running in college eventually. So that if, if we're looking for a kind of a person that probably kept me motivated past just kind of that same mindset of I'm going to do whatever sports I'm best at. And that's probably what I'll focus on. He's probably one that would be the first that really popped up. 
Yeah. yeah. And speaking of, of being motivated, and I know you just mentioned, you know, Coach uh, David Ringer, but uh, Ring, Ringer, Ring, right? Ring. Ring. I'm sorry, David Ring. But as far as motivation, how many times, how did it feel, you know, basically for yourself? I mean, were, were you a guy that ran every day regardless of the season? If it was track season or cross-country season, were you a kid that just got up in the morning and ran? Probably not until I think it was my senior year in high school. I started running year round for the first time in my life. Uh, Before that, I would take pretty big periods of time off in the winter and, uh, you know, then kind of start building up the beginning of track season. And then at the end of track season, kind of take a good chunk of time off in the summer and then start getting maybe serious by the end of summer, summer and start preparing for cross country. But my senior year in high school, I ran year round. what I would consider now pretty modest amount of volume. I was probably running between 20 to 30 miles a week at the most. And uh, that kind of set me up to want to see what I could do in college. And that was kind of a, a big eye opening experience for me though. When I, when I started running in college, it was like, not only did I have to work to get up to kind of what those, what, what we would be doing as freshmen, sophomores, but then have this trajectory of where you wanted to be as a junior, senior in terms of training volume and intensities and things like that. So I kind of had a long ways to go from where I am now in terms of just what I think are the types of training that really is good for me in terms of what I respond to. And uh, I look back at that as I'm kind of thankful of that because I have buddies and you hear people who are you know, doing like almost professional style training programs in high school. And, you know, by the time they get into college or finish college, it's almost burnout. Like they kind of burnt themselves out a bit where I was almost just starting to get hungry with the sport by the time I finished college, which I think is what one of the reasons why it's probably made it sustainable for me today, even. Yeah. Do you, did you notice a, a difference in just kind of how your, your overall mindset or, or how you felt, you know, body wise, um, from, you know, when you're in the off season to when you are actually training, I mean, did you feel better when you were running or, you know, because I think about consistency, right. Mm. And I think about Mm. like, for me, exercise, if, if I don't, I, I feel, which has been the last three years of my life. uh, I feel awful. (laughs) Right. But, Mm -hmm. you know, did you notice that at an early age? Yeah. You know, at an early age, I just, I like to be active. So like if I was sitting still for too long, it would be like, I'd have to get up and do something. Like if I were like sitting, sitting and playing video games or something like that, I couldn't last more than like an hour or two before I had to get outside and like hop on a bike or something like that. And uh, I think that was something that was probably, I probably instilled pretty early on. Um, you know, I had, a, I got a, a paper out when I was 10 years old. So I was waking up early back then and riding my bike around throwing papers at people's houses in the morning before school at a pretty early age. So I think just that idea of like, movement and things like that have, have been around for me for my whole life. So I almost don't know other than points in my career where I've been injured. It's like a kind of a point of reference. I don't have a whole lot of good spots from, cause I have been fairly active in one shape or form mm-hmm. my whole life. And it's just been this, uh, once I got serious about running where that was going to be kind of the focal point where everything kind of revolved around that versus that being kind of just one piece to the puzzle. All right. So you're in high school. Let's go back to your high school years. Cause I know in high school, that's when we all showed off and we thought we were the, sh- well, I don't tell you, but I didn't think, yeah, no, I, thought. Knew. So I didn't think I knew. Let's go into your senior year. And before I, I want to see, hear the mindset at that age, you're probably 17, 18 years old in your senior year. 
Was there a swagger about you, a confidence about you before you started, before a race or a meet? Did you know that you were the dog, that you were the guy? Uh, you know, I would say in terms of like on the team I was on, I knew I'd been the kind of the top runner on the cross country team, my junior and senior year. And then in track, I was kind of the top distance runner on the team. So amongst our guys, uh, I definitely felt kind of like I had that more leadership position, I guess. But once we kind of got into like statewide competition and bigger meets and things like that, you know, I wasn't going to be the guy who won state or even podiumed at state. So uh, my kind of first impression, although at the time, I don't know that I realized as much as I do now is like, you know, I was kind of racing against myself in the sense that I wanted to see my own improvement, but I was also trying to uh, compete as well as I could, but with the understanding that I likely wasn't going to win the state meet, or I knew for pretty, pretty sure I wasn't going to win the state meet or anything like that. So that kind of, I think is what maybe drove me into being interested in the sport as a development standpoint in like my own potential versus just simply trying to be the best for the sake of being the best. Right. So you didn't even win state in high school and you have the world record for a hundred miles. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't win state. I think my cross country, cross country, my senior year, I was 24th at state breaking 25 is pretty, is kind of like a, a target for a lot of, a lot of uh, folks in the high school level, but uh, I was nowhere near the first place guy there. And uh, in college, I went to the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, which is a, it, they're a very competitive division three school for track and cross country. But uh, I was, I was very much just kind of one of, uh, one of many uh, kids on that team that uh, there was, there's easily 10 guys faster than me in a lot of cases. So, so interesting. talk to us about that, that time at Stevens Point, because I, I played division two football and at that level in division three, you're playing the sport because you love it. There, there is no glory. You're not getting a lot of fanfare. It's not like these guys over here. You're getting paid to play on the on the side. Like, it's because you Whoa, really love it. You say on the side? Like, oh, you heard me. No, 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 no. Fresno on, State, man. You can't the tuition bill comes in still. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're paying for school as opposed to getting paid for school, right? So what was the motivating factor? I'm just – for football, it's like the, the carrot is the NFL. For baseball, it's the MLB. What is the carrot in, in Division three cross-country for you to keep going and want to keep doing that? Yeah, I think for me at the time, I was definitely focusing more on just educa my education and kind of what was going to happen after that. And at that point in time, I never would have guessed that I would be having a career based around my, my running achievements. Uh, so for me, it was more like, I like sports. I want to do this one. Uh, the school I'm going to has a cross country and track team. If I'm going to be here, I may as well do it. And once I kind of got into the program, I just became like, I was introduced to so much new information, I think, in terms of what you need to do to race competitively and to really kind of peak for a specific race that I got really interested kind of in like, well, why are we doing workouts now? And, you know, how is this going to make me faster at a five kilometer race versus a 10 kilometer race and that sort of stuff. So the motivation for me then I think was just a little bit like I wanted to improve year, year after year and just kind of see where I could get but I also wanted to learn the sport and kind of decide what I wanted to do with it after college. I, I assumed I would still run. I didn't necessarily know in what capacity, but I really wanted to learn like what was my favorite parts about running? What were my motivation to keep doing it? And then ultimately kind of build post-collegiate running, which at the time I assumed was just going to be a hobby 
uh, around whatever I found most interesting. Mm. So that's kind of what kept me motivated, kept me interested during that. And then as, as, uh, as you guys probably can relate, you know, you get into a team with a group of other individuals, you get to know them, become your kind of your, your college friends and stuff like that. And then it's like, it's just a no brainer kind of that you're going to go back regardless. Cause that's, that's the people you want to hang out with. It sounds like though you had this internal competition. Like yeah, you I was gonna say you're very you're very yeah. self-reflective. It sounds like. Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's a, I think it's a one of the things where like I thought to myself like it's uh, the one thing you can control more or less. Like I can't necessarily control if someone else goes and runs the time for like say a five kilometer race that's like faster than I could ever imagine doing, but I can control like what I'm going to do. So for me, I think like learning early on that I need to control the things that I can and not worry about the things I can't. And then what happens kind of happens. And at a certain point, you just got to be content with that and then decide where you want to go from there. So that is such such a great lesson. There's no way I had that mindset at 22. And that foundation just is stronger, right? Because you, because you're not chasing something that someone else has done, or you're not, you know, trying to achieve something because you're your own individual and just get better day in and day out and just continue to stack those chips. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I didn't know it at the time, I think, but it is like one of those things that is helpful in the long term because you do find a reason to be doing these things. Uh, outside of just like a race result. And that's what I always try to share with my coaching clients too, when they're deciding to kind of build up for a race is let's figure out a way where you can enjoy this entire process so that if you get to the race and for whatever reason, you have a really bad day, you can still look at the last kind of four months of training and build up and be glad you did it. Mm -hmm. So if you can do that, then you're doing the right sport. You're doing the right thing. If you're there just to kind of have a good race at a particular event, then there's probably more exciting things you can be doing than waking up at 5 a.m. and running for two hours. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that that, sort of stuff. that's such a good point because, and we talk about this all the time, understanding why you started or why you're pursuing whatever it is that you're pursuing, because that's what wakes you up early. That's what keeps you up late. That's what keeps you going day in and day out as opposed to, well, I'm just decent at it and now I want to keep doing it. So that's interesting that you say mm-hmm. that. So you, you have your career at Stevens point at what, point in that in your college career did you decide or did you think hey this is something that I could do as a professional yeah so when I was at point you know I think the thing I recognized the most from that experience was that if I had to pick my favorite workout out of the week or out of the season it was always the long run usually our our kind of standard procedure would be we do workouts <laughs> opposite wrong from you, everybody at this something table. is wrong with you <laughs> <laughs> The wire was missing or, or, crossed or something <laughs> in there, I guess. But yeah, so it was, we would do like a speed workout on Tuesday. Usually that would be kind of focused on short intervals. And then on Thursdays we would do another workout that was more what they would call kind of a lactic threshold or tempo based type uh, workout. And then Saturdays we typically have our meets, whether it was cross country or track. And then Sundays we would do our long run. So Sunday mornings I'd wake up with my, my college teammates stuff we'd go for like usually by the time I was a junior senior like 15 to sometimes 17 mile uh, long runs and that was the one I always kind of looked forward to the most and and uh, decided I wanted to kind of do more of when I got out of college so when I finished I didn't have that structure of the team and the kind of the 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 scheduling of workouts and things like that I actually for a couple of years almost stepped away from running speed in general and just started building volume and kind of built up that. And that's, I think what kind of led me 
a little bit more towards kind of the ultra marathon side of things was just building up that volume, kind of falling in love with the long aspect. It's not, it's not too far of a stretch after that to kind of start focusing your racing goals on the types of running you like to do the most in training. So what was it about the long runs that you enjoyed? Yeah, I don't even know for sure. I think it was just like this, like kind of mindset of, I can go out and when you're, when you get really in good shape with it, you feel like you could just do it for a really long period of time and you're moving. There's just this mindset that like, almost like, you know, if I had to get from like here to there in a fast period of time with nothing but my own, my own physical abilities, I could easily do it. And that was kind of an intriguing thing to me. And, and I think there's also, I think this is something that runs along the lines in ultra running in general with a lot of folks is there's this kind of like, mindset of like how far can I go so you like you kind of get almost addicted to it where Mm. you go out I remember when I I ran my first 100 mile week over uh spring break one year in college I remember when I hit that 100 mile week I was like wow I wonder how much further I go and then that kind of feeds into it's almost like this this kind of like uh this journey to kind of push yourself on it from a distance standpoint which is a little different than your your typical endurance type efforts where you run a race of say 10 kilometers and then the next time I want to see if I can run a little faster Mm. and then a little, so you keep the distance the same, but you try to improve your, your pace. So I I think I went through this phase kind of at the end of college and after college where I just wanted to see like, I wonder how far I can run and uh, how does my body respond to doing like these big volume training weeks and things like that. And uh, that was kind of uh, something that I got curious about for, for better or worse. <laughs> so you know, it, there's yeah. things you can be curious about. <laughs> there's other yeah. things you can be curious about than putting yourself to that kind of torture. What's going through your head? That's my next okay. question. What is going yes. through your, because I'm sitting there thinking any, any kind of endurance that I've been doing, the, all I'm thinking is my legs hurt, yeah. my lungs hurt. How this soon sucks. can we get done how, with yeah, this? Are we yes. almost done? What are you thinking <laughs> during these miles and miles of running? I, I think I'm just really good at turning my brain off. That's <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it's, it, it is interesting. I think uh, one thing I, I learned uh, after I left college, cause in college, you know, go for longer with a group of like, you know, eight to 10 other guys and you just, you know, you're, you're, you're talking and you're joking around and stuff like that. So I think it was almost like Wait, even you can, a, a little you bit can of a talk social you run? <laughs> That's, that's physically possible. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You guys no idea. First what, we what, ran where do the bicep curls fit into this whole training <laughs> workout you're doing? <laughs> you, you guys were developing that anaerobic system while I was developing the aerobic yeah. system. So yeah. that's where the. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. But yeah, I think that kind of fed into it a little bit. And then after after college, and I started running a lot by myself, I that's kind of around that same time I discovered podcasts and things like that. So I would pick a topic of something I wanted to learn more about. And I would listen to a podcast while I was running and feel like I was kind of getting double benefit out of it. I was getting my training in. I was also learning something. And I think that was kind of a bit of a draw to, to just kind of, you know, running a more like aerobic pace. Cause I could actually kind of think about what the discussion was in the podcast versus, you know, having to hyper-focus on kind of staying on pace for some of the faster efforts and things like that. So uh, I think there's probably a variety of things that kind of fed into that. Uh, there is, um, you know, I think the first time I even heard of an ultra marathon was, uh, well, actually I heard about it when I was in high school, but I didn't really know it was an ultra marathon. I just heard about this guy who had run like 200, I think it was 268 miles consecutively without sleeping. And I thought it was just this wild thing. And I kind of 
pushed, pushed that to the back of my mind until, till college. I actually ended up reading his book then in college. And that's, I think when I decided at some point I'll run an ultra marathon. What, but, what book was that? Uh, it was a book called uh, Ultra Marathon Man okay. uh, by Dean Karnassus. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's what the book is. <laughs> Death Man. Death. <laughs> what is the definition of an ultra marathon, by the way? What's the minimum requirement for an ultra? Yeah, so most folks are going to kind of consider like the entry is a 50-kilometer race, which is 31.25 miles. Okay. Uh, it's kind of that first step in there. Uh, technically, it'd be anything past a marathon. And it gets a little goofy because ultra marathon in general is such a wide umbrella of different events and different terrains. You can have like 50 Ks up in the mountains where you're 10,000 feet above sea level the entire time. And you're going up and down steep technical stuff. Those races around a 400 meter track where you run for six days, see how far you can get in six what? days. And yeah, so it's like around a track, and no meter like, track? Sl- sleeping, no mm-hmm. sleeping. I mean, is there... The six day stuff is usually some sleeping. I think the least amount of sleeping I've heard was there's a guy who's kind of a legend amongst the timed events. His name is Giannis Kuros. And he, uh, he's got the 24 hour world record, which is the furthest you can run in 24 hours. And he's also done a lot of six day stuff. And he did a six day once. I think he slept less than eight hours the entire time. So it's just like mind boggling stuff. And I actually remember I was following the race. He did that. And I remember, I think it was like day five, it was on this like one mile, like kind of dirt loop that they do this. And it's actually just outside of Phoenix. And, uh, on day five, he had the way he structures his race strategy is he'll, he tells his crew exactly what he wants to do. And he tells him, do not let me do anything other than what's on the plan. So you find yourself in a goofy situation. I think when you're five days into a six day and they're trying to keep him to doing what he said he wanted to do. And he was like out there just kind of wobbling around and running into fences and trees. Like oh, man. That would be awesome to see. <laughs> yeah. It, it's well, funny. it is interesting too. When you get into that longer timed event stuff too, because I think a lot of times people think ultramarathon is a relatively new phenomenon, but they actually had uh, timed events in Madison Square Garden back in the 1800s where they'd have people running, biking, and crowds would come in and watch them and place bets on these folks to see like, who's going to make it the furthest, who's going to like, mm. you know, huh. all sorts of different things. So I think it was like before, before Netflix and before uh, <laughs> all these like, other like football, baseball, basketball sports and go to Madison square garden, and watch people run around a loop. By the way, that 24 hour run that he was mentioning, that's like running from Dallas to Houston, by the way. Yeah. In 24, oh, hours. 24 hours. There's no way. There's so no what, way. what's, what's an eat and we're going to get back to the story in a second, but what's, What's worse, a, a one lap repeated a thousand times yeah, or a long trail run? Yeah, it depends. I think if, uh, if you're looking at it from just kind of, uh, inter- if you want to be like kind of an entertained and from a monotony standpoint, you definitely want to do like a point to point trail race because everything kind of changes. You get terrain variants, you get, you know, changes in to- topography, you get different views and things like that. So you can kind of break it up as like, all right, I'm going to get to this section of the course and experience that. Whereas, you know, you're doing something like that. Logistically, it's a lot more difficult. Like, you know, you might have like long stretches between aid stations. You might not be able to see a crew or anything like that for a long period of time. So if you make a mistake, you probably pay for it a lot worse. Right. Whereas these short loop track stuff, it's super monotonous. You got the exact same mechanic the whole way. So it really kind of beats you up in a very unique way. 
And, uh, but the nice thing about that is you have whatever you want, whenever you want it, you basically have one person out there helping you and you say what you want. You have it a lap letter. If you mess it up, then it's just 400 meters to, to fix that mistake. So there's kind of pros and cons to both. And they're just kind of a little bit of a different mindset, I think, where you have to kind of learn to kind of separate yourself from the environment when you're running on a short loop like that. Whereas when you're out in the, like on the trails on a point to point course you're kind of trying to be in the moment experiencing where you're at versus trying to separate yourself from the environment so to that point you've seen and ran a lot of places what is what is your favorite race point to point race that you've like from a scenic geography standpoint yeah that's a good question um i'd probably say the my the favorite one I've done from like a like a visual standpoint I'd probably say the San Diego hundred. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one was pretty cool. Uh, the Western States one hundred I've done a couple times. That one is probably the most iconic one I've done, where you run from uh, like Olympic Valley, where they had the the Winter Olympics. I think it was in yeah, Squaw Valley. Eight, yeah, in eighty two yeah. I believe or something yeah. like that. Yeah, eighty four. And yeah, yep, yeah. You start there and you end in Auburn. So that's kind of a cool one yeah. where. And Going down Highway a, 80 right there. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You've done this before, yeah. huh, Tyler? Yeah, I've right. driven that. You've driven <laughs> quite a, no, you quite have not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah the point-to-points are kind of cool, though, because it's like just to, just the idea or like the mindset going in, thinking I'm going to start here and then, you know, in X number of hours, I'm going to end up over here and I'm going to do it all by foot. And I think that's the draw for a lot of people is this kind of like kind of human-powered movement that is uh, – is really motivating for folks to see or challenging, I guess, is maybe the way to look at it that draws them to that. And you don't really get that with the short loop courses for those. You kind of have to be more like internally motivated, I think in terms of like, okay, this is where I want to try to get to. And I have like all the logistical things in place that I'm going to need in order to do it. I'm going to limit all like kind of the barriers. I'm not going to have to climb up any Hills, go across any rivers or anything like that. It's just me a flat environment that doesn't change. And then you get all those benefits of being able to control that. But then it also puts you in this kind of unique situation where, you know, if you slow down a second in a lap, you know, you slow down a second and you can start thinking about that and spiraling negatively. Whereas if I'm out on the trails, if I have like a mile that's mostly uphill and it's a lot slower than the previous mile, I don't overthink it too much. Cause I'm like, okay, that was just a harder mile. Yeah. You know, so it's just a little bit different, I think, where on the track, one thing I've learned, and I may, I've made this mistake plenty of times, and that's probably how I've learned it, is just like, you can let your mind just spiral into a negative place very fast on a track, on a short loop. And if you let it do that, it will just consume you and you'll end up having a rotten day and dropping out or just having a bad, bad end of the race. But uh, you can also kind of spiral that in a positive way. So if you kind of know that going in and you know where the tricky spots are going to possibly be, you can kind of strategize so that when they do come up, you have some ideas of what you're going to do to kind of get yourself back, back into it, into it mentally. Are you doing this by yourself or is there someone that can support staff that's, that's helping you monitor this? Yeah. So usually what will end up happening is they'll have these timed event races. Most of them are 24 hour and then you can kind of do whatever you want with that time. So for me, I've been the last few years, one of the focal points for me has just been targeting like how fast can I run a hundred mile on these very controlled environments. And then like, how far can I get in 12 hours is kind of a secondary, like, uh, add on to that. And, uh, the, that, that setup is kind of nice because then you have like a race director who's kind of getting this loop certified. They're putting timing mats out there. Like they're putting screens up where you can see like your lap split, your average pace and all that stuff. 
So then if you go there, they'll, they'll take care of all the documenting, all the recording and things like that. So you don't have to be worried about, you know, what lap am I on? What mile am I on? And did they miss a lap or something like that type of a thing? So I'm not counting them myself. And, and then you basically just need at least one other person out there to, to hand you what you need. And uh, it, the, the other interesting thing about those short loops versus some of the kind of more self-supported trail races is in these trail ones, you, there's points where you go through like an aid station where you know you're going to have to stop and kind of take care of yourself. So there's a lot more non-moving time. Whereas when you're on a 400 meter track, there's really no reason for you to stop unless you have to go to the bathroom. So like you have all your fuel just handed to you as you're moving. You want to minimize the amount of stopping you can do. And, you know, you try to whittle that down. Like the most efficient I had is I did a hundred miler in 2015. I had to stop for like a total of like 60 to 90 seconds throughout the entire day. Wow. And uh, that's just kind of the the control, the logistical aspect of of that sort of thing versus maybe the trail races, some of these more remote locations. So you mentioned fuel. What what is that like? What are you eating? I mean, is it nachos? Is it like hot dog while you're in the middle of the race? Like what what are they feeding you? A like Slurpee. <laughs> yeah. You you've seen. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's you name it and you can find it at, at in someone's uh someone's nutrition bag or at the aid stations there's such a wide variety i i lean pretty heavily on liquid calories okay so for me like i like to use this product uh, by a company called s fuels called race plus mm. and that's just like a powder that i'll pour in my my drink mix but okay. you do need to be kind of careful because if you're doing a lot of like liquid calories especially if they're kind of a pure fast mm-hmm. reactive carbohydrate yeah then it's almost like it processes so fast. Your body doesn't really know what to do with it. If you're taking in too much mm-hmm. and it, the, your body's response to that is a pull like liquid into your stomach to help digest. And that's why you see such a high rate of like stomach issues, digestive issues in some of these longer events. Uh, and so you do want to mix in, I think some kind of solid foods with at least small amounts of fats and proteins in there. Uh, some electrolytes, things that are going to kind of slow down the digestive process a little bit. So for me, I'll lean heavily on that S Fuels Race Plus product, but uh, um, I'll also be moving in some kind of whole food options, usually things that are a little more like a different flavor profile. So if the, the drink mix is a little sweeter than the, the whole food option, we try to get a little more salty, a little more savory, just so I kind of have a, like a different, different like palate experience throughout the course of the day. Yeah. So, no, I got to ask this. Well, go ahead. I, I got to go here because <laughs> look, I, I was reading your bio and I'll, it is the broke, Zach Bitter broke the American 100 mile record in 2013, then the world record six years later. Then it says current 100 mile record holder. You ran it in 11 hours, 19 minutes, 13 seconds. Your pace was six minutes and 48 seconds. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking 100 miles. Someone had to pit on themselves. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, this is going to be a poignant question. No, and it comes to hey, Zach, did you pee on yourself? Be real. Let's be real. When we start reading this, I was like, how do you eat piss? Because there's no way that you're going to run that far and have that much endurance and then your body process doesn't take take its care of it so i'm just wondering man what's the mental aspect of going through this because it's it's look one mile no no but we'll probably run that in about what eight minutes 20 but you kept this pace at six your split was six minutes just over six minutes how in the hell do you do that mentally yeah i think uh you know it's interesting because like 
if you had told me at some point in my life, like if you told me when I ran that first mile back in middle school in like seven and a half minutes that someday I'd run a hundred in sub seven minute pace, I would have, would have laughed at you. So it's, <laughs> it's weird. I think like one of the best things I've had um, kind of going through this whole process is I, I've never really overthought the end goal too much. I've always kind of thought like, let's, let's, focus on making improvements. Let's focus on kind of fixing mistakes and kind of just see where I get. And you do that for you know almost two decades in my experience at this point, you just find yourself in a position where you've kind of, you've put in so much of the work, you have so much of the foundation there that, you know, it what would look like an enormous leap from like my very first mile to that hundred mile world record is actually like a lot of tiny little steps to get there, a lot of incremental gains. And sometimes it was taking steps backwards in order to make steps forwards and something like that. So over the course of that long period of time is where you start to, I guess, normalize it. So even though had you told me 20 years ago, yeah, you're going to have to try to run hundred miles in under seven minute pace. Uh, you, when you told me your goal today is to run under seven minute pace for hundred miles. When I told the line for that race, I was confident I was going to be able to do that. And it wasn't because I was shooting for the stars. It was because I had kind of put in the work and I had, I knew from my training, I knew from my previous races, if I executed properly, that's kind of what I would be able to do. Uh, so that's helpful. I think if you can get in a position where you can trust your training, you can trust the process and then, and then just try to execute in the way that, that you know how. And I think for me, one of the most powerful things that I've done the last couple of years that I kind of had to learn through the first few years of, of just ultra running is kind of how do you structure your training and the race itself to be able to mentally kind of sustain that or mentally stay focused on that. And one of the things I've done that has really helped is if I do like in, in ultra marathoning, that's, there's a pretty popular training technique where you'll do like back-to-back -back long runs and most people are doing them on the weekend. So like a Saturday and Sunday, you know, you might go out for like a 30 mile run on Saturday morning and then a 30 mile run again on Sunday morning. And what I would do during those is I would just imagine, okay, I'm pretending at the start of this long run that I'm 70 miles into hundred miles. I'm just going to visualize what it's like to finish that last 30 miles so that when I do get to the race itself, just one second, uh, we're having a technical issue. Some, for some reason, your microphone just went out for just a second. Yeah. Yeah. You're still out right now. Go ahead. <clears throat> Maybe it's on our end. Let us uh, take a look here. Sorry about, oh, excuse me. Sorry about this. I can't hear. No, we still no. can't. No. Can you hear us Zach? Give us a thumbs up. You yeah, hear us? Okay. okay. It's definitely, it's definitely Ben's Ben's problem. Yeah. We totally cut out. Is there anything he can hit on his side? All right. Uh, uh, Hey Zach, we're gonna we're gonna log out and then we'll log back. Can we do that? Yeah, we may need to log out and then log back in. You hear that, man? Can you guys hear me now? Gotcha. gotcha. There it is. Okay. <laughs> All right. So go, let, let, let's <laughs> let, let's go back just a little bit because that was really sure. important part there. Um, yeah. 
the last 30 miles, like, so you're training. So that was when, when, when we lost you there, but the last you're, you're training, visualizing. Yeah. On your, on your back-to-back long runs, you're saying, okay, Hey, this is mile 71. Let's, let's finish this race strong. What's that mentality and, and what are you training yourself for? Yeah. Cause I think, I think before I started kind of implementing a strategy of kind of using those long runs as visualization or like kind of race day preparation, it was, you get to that point in the race, that 70 mile point, and it's just pretty defeating because you're physically worn down. You still have a long ways to go. You're mentally worn down. You still have a long ways to go. Whereas when you kind of use those as points of reference, it makes it a little more easy to wrap your head around it because, uh, you know, you, instead of having to kind of reflect back to the last time I ran a hundred miles. Now, when I get to 70 miles, I think to myself, I've done this like six, seven or eight times in training in the last couple of months to get ready for this. So it gives you kind of a point of reference. That's a little more fresh in your mind or a little closer. So it's like, you're doing these dress rehearsals and training on the weekends to kind of really prepare your mind and body for, for what you're going to try to do. And then it just comes down to picking that as kind of a focal point, but also picking other little benchmarks along the way that you're trying to target and get to. So that instead of thinking of I'm running hundred miles today, you're thinking of, I'm going to try to check off this objective. And then once I get to that one, I'll start thinking of the next one and then keep kind of doing that throughout the course of the day until you get to yourself to a point where it's kind of feasible to wrap your head around what's, what's left in the race itself. Mm-hmm. Guys, he's sitting here talking. There's just so many applications, applications to, yeah. to anything you do. Yeah, It's amazing. Everything you're saying, my mind's taking me to business or to yeah. other fitness goals. Because you're sitting here saying, mm-hmm. you know, you have these small micro goals, but, but the old, you know, all in, in conjunction with the big overarching goal. So it's amazing what you're talking about, how similar running and in, in those races are to just life. It's and the well, it, to me, it sounds like it's the mental aspect because we've all played a physical sport. You know, mentally, yeah, you have to be, in, you know, get yourself, you know, ready to, to perform, but you're always physically, you're, you know, trying to build the muscle and do this. It sounds like in, in what you've gone through in your life, the mental aspect, yeah, you have to be physically fit, but the mental aspect of talking yourself through this, through preparation, through milestones, when you're actually in a race or, or when you're actually running, that's, a, that's an everyday performance that you have to do it at an elite, an elite level. Yeah, you know, I think it's, it's really interesting to me because like the more I kind of think about just kind of how I've learned to kind of participate in the sport of running and ultra running, the more I realize like how that's guided kind of the way I approach any, any kind of goal or any any task in life, whether it be work, business, um, you know, anything like that, where I think it's great to have these big, like overreaching goals that you want to get to. But ultimately, I think you do want to kind of have smaller goals. And this feeds into the race itself, as well as the training. So when I'm kind of doing my training program, I like to kind of pick little spots where if I can get to this part of the workout with like these results, then that's kind of kind of win my mind and those add up over the course and keep you motivated for the course of training. And ultimately then I think if you spend say four months to six months kind of doing that in training in preparation for kind of your key race, then by the time you get to the starting line, even if it's a hundred mile race, or even if you start thinking to yourself, I have to run for 12 hours today. If you think of it in its big picture, it's like you're 99% of the way there already at the start of the race. And then when you find yourself in a weird position, say at mile 40 thinking, all right, my legs are starting to get tired. Uh, I'm getting sick of thinking about these loops. I still have 60 miles to go. You got, you got to ask yourself, am I willing to bail out at 99%? 
And, uh, you know, then it's really hard to convince yourself if you've done, if you're 99% of the way there to stop going. Whereas if you look at it just in isolation, you think, well, I'm only 40 miles in. If I stop now, I'll recover quicker and I can jump in a different race down the road. And it's really easy for your mind to try to trick you like that. So I think knowing that just comes from and, yeah. and having that happen strong decision enough times that you end up making the right decision eventually. <laughs> what, what you choose to focus on, this is a conversation Darren and I just had just the other day. And I'm more and more convinced the more we do this and the more conversations we had, it's, it's all your approach and how you, two, two people can take the same example or the same situation and look at it completely different. And so what you're talking about, the 99% is so important because you can take, instead of saying, oh, I still got 60 miles left, this sucks. You're choosing to say, no, I'm already most of the way there. I've done all the work up to this mm -hmm. point. This is just the last 1%. That's such a good perspective, I mm -hmm. think, to have. Yeah. And I think like one thing that really helped me with that, just from a career standpoint was in 2015, I did a race where it was a similar structure. It was on a 400 meter track. It, uh, it was actually, it was actually central high school in Phoenix. They do this race yeah. every year. Desert. Sensational. Oh, I know where central high is huh. though. Yeah. 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 So, uh, the, there I was, I had put in one of the craziest training blocks of my life. I had a three week buildup before what I, we would call like a tape for the race where you just kind of back off for a couple of weeks and let your body kind of catch up and get real fresh and ready for race day. And I put in a training cycle where I hit like, I think it was like 135, 150, and then 180 or 170 miles in three weeks. So I just kind of progressively built up to 170 mile training week. And I got to that race feeling like as confident as I had ever been at that. I was going to take a shot at the hundred mile world record. And at mile 80, I was, the previous world record was a 6.52 and a half minute mile pace. Hmm. And I got to mile 80 needing to average seven minute pace to break it. So I was ahead of world record pace, but I couldn't for the life of me get motivated to run faster than a seven and a half minute mile. So I just kind of death marched that last 20 miles hmm. and just watched the world record kind of slip away and ended up breaking what was my American record at the time. So it wasn't a complete defeat, but it, it was also something that stuck in my mind, I think, for, you know, almost four years after that, where I just, you know, every day you kind of think about well, what if I would have been able to be a little bit stronger that last 20 miles, or what do I have to do to be stronger that last 20 miles? So when I got to mile 80 at, uh, at the Pettit Center last August, where I ultimately broke the 100 mile world record, my mindset coming into that 80 mile mark is I, I got to get back to that so I can kind of fix that mistake I made back in 2015. And, and that, that was just a totally different mindset than I had had in a race like that previous, where instead of fearing that last 20 miles, I was just like kind of hungry to get there and try to Love that. see if I could correct that. That's awesome. So I want to go back a little bit again, but you graduate college, you continue running Training in this aspect is not a short time, right? If you're putting in, you know, 100, 150 miles a week, I mean, those are big blocks of time, even if you get up at 5 a.m. But what were you doing, I mean, for a living at that point before you, you made a name for yourself and you were maybe coaching other clients and, and doing all that? What was, how were you balancing the training with, with real life? I mean, I say real life, but, mm -hmm. you know, with work. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was busy. I think, uh, when I was teaching at the time. So there was some, you, you try to structure your year as best you can. Obviously I had a good chunk of time in the summer where I could live like a professional athlete more or less for about three months. 
And it was nice having kind of guaranteed weekends and holidays to be able to put in some big training sessions and things like that. But during the school year, uh, you know, it was busy. Like I'd get up at four in the morning, I'd put in a couple hours of running in a lot of cases, you know, go in, teach for the day. And then depending on whether I was coaching at the time or not, I did some coaching in cross country and track and field as well. You know, it might be like six, seven o'clock before I get around to doing a second run for the day. So it was basically like, you know, work, eat, sleep, run type of a, a repeat cycle until there was a little bit of a break in it. So that, that was, you know, it was busy. It was uh, probably unsustainable, I would say, yeah. <laughs> over the course of like, uh, you know, a really long period of time. But uh, uh, I was able to do it for, I guess, would have been five years before I got to a point where um, I was having enough demand as a coach. I had enough race results where I had some sponsor support and things where I could could justify kind of stepping away from teaching and focusing on on training and racing a little more more well-rounded and I, I like to stay busy I don't think I'd ever be good at just training and racing even with the 20-hour training weeks that I'll sometimes do um, so I like to have other things to do whether it be podcasting um, coaching and things like that so I do still try to stay busy but now the biggest difference I think is everything can kind of revolve around training and racing and then uh, you plug in these other things kind of along the side versus having the training and racing sometimes have to take a secondary seat to whatever else is important at the time. And when, you know, you're responsible for some, for a group of kids education, you got to put that kind of at the top of the list or you get some angry parents after a while. <laughs> <laughs> Talk us through that mindset though, that, that decision to say, Hey, I'm all in on this. Like I'm all in on the ultra marathons. I'm all in on these things. I'm going to step away from the secure mm -hmm. teaching job. And I'm going to bet on myself. Talk yeah. to that mindset a little bit more and that decision that you made. Yeah, it definitely was a hard decision. Cause I think like at that point in my teaching career, I had found the location that I really enjoyed the school district. I really enjoyed teaching at the environment was perfect for me as a teacher. So like knowing that, like by doing this, I was potentially uh, not going to ever have that opportunity again was tough, but ultimately my thought process was I probably have realistically, um, you know, 10 at most 20 years where I'm going to be fast enough to, to merit a, an athlete sponsorship or something like that. And uh, with teaching, it's something I could always go back to. So it was the training and racing side of things was a little bit of a, a tighter, smaller window. And I thought if I don't take this opportunity now, am I going to look back at that when I'm 40, 45, 50 and think like, why didn't I just you know, go for it there and see what happened. So I think just like, I was almost more or less fearful of how I would view the decision if I decided to not try to, you know, see what I was capable of, mm -hmm. uh, than I would if I, you know, fell flat on my face and went back to teaching two years later. And that was kind of my mind actually, when I did, uh, I was like, you know what, let's try this for a couple of years. If it doesn't work, I'll go back to teaching and, and, uh, kind of fire that side of things back up again. What were the people around you saying when you decided, Hey, I want to go run for a living. I want to leave the secure job. What, what were the people around you saying? Yeah, they were, they're really supportive. I didn't get any real pushback. I mean, I, if people asked like I, what I would consider fair questions, like, you know, are you, you know, what's your, what's your strategy now versus when you ultimately finish, whether that be in a couple of years or in, you know, 15 years or something like that. Like, are you building something around yourself so that you have a, a, a career post career kind of a mindset? Cause you know, the interesting thing 
the, the one of the most interesting to me about like professional athletes in general is just you, know, you retire at such a young age relative to most jobs that you have to be thinking about that for a variety of reasons, obviously financially. And then the other thing, just like, well, what's going to keep you motivated to, you know, enjoy life and start the day in a positive way and things like that. So I think I had a lot of encouragement as to like, well, what else do you want to do with your time? Like, how can you set things up to be uh, valuable to you in a variety of ways after you're no longer fast enough to, to do that as like kind of a primary focus. And uh, so I get, instead of getting, I think, pushback, I got a lot of encouragement and advice from people that I think would, were um, very supportive and, and uh, gave me some great ideas as to kind of what to do. And fortunately for me, one of the catalysts too was just uh, kind of building my coaching side of things up a little bit where I started doing that the last couple of years of teaching where I started to it's kind of organically, it was more or less people started reaching out asking me if I coached or if I would be willing to do that. And you know, I thought that would be kind of fun. And I started doing that. And that just started to snowball enough to where between that and just uh, um, sponsorship stuff, it was at a point where like financially, I could make it work. And then it was just about kind of trying to build it out as as far as I can uh, between then and, and now and, and hopefully going forward as well. So are yeah. you coaching locally in, in yeah, Phoenix? Or is this become are people been reaching out from all over the world to come out, come out and train with you? Yeah, it's most remote. So I'll do a lot of one-on-one -on -one remote coaching. It can be anywhere from anywhere around the world. Now that we have, uh, you know, coaching has gotten such a different kind of, uh, kind of setup, I think within the running communities with, with how much uh, technology we have now where you can do a complete remote, you can get on video conferences, you can email, you can send programs and things back and forth instantaneously. Whereas like if I would have been, you know, got into running back in like the eighties and nineties, I'd maybe be looking at a scenario where if I wanted to coach, I'd be like you know, mailing workouts and things like that. And it would just be a much higher barrier to entry. So I do mostly online. Um, I, I think I will, I was planning on doing a little more local, have like a local branch to things this year, obviously the COVID COVID-19 stuff all made it a little more challenging to kind of do any in-person in stuff. So that's been, kind of sidelined a bit until we kind of get through this stuff, but um, mostly online. But I, I do think like kind of having that local piece is kind of cool just because you have that interperson interaction and in-person experience is always, always kind of fun. Yeah. So, so you, I'm sorry, go ahead, Tom. I was just going to say, you, you mentioned how technology has changed the sport, yeah. um, but how is like the training methodology and how you approach these races, how has it changed over the last few decades? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think from a technology standpoint, you just have such a larger body of like data sets that you can kind of pull from and decide yeah. as to whether a workout or a race went well, or you can kind of pick some of these like spots during a race where things maybe didn't go well and tease out where you can make the biggest improvement versus like a spot where like even a really big, uh, a big improvement wouldn't really move the needle too much. So like one of the big things is you know, now everyone running basically wears like a GPX watch, GPS watch where, you know, they get, get like all their data from like the pace, the distance, the elevation game, their heart rate. Um, some of them even have like metrics where it shows like your effort score. So you can know like what intensity you were running at. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of that stuff has gotten to be very valuable um, in terms of what you can use as like a post-workout or post-race analysis stuff. So for me, I'll go for a run or a race and I'll have it all tracked 
without even having to think twice about it. And then afterwards I can load that up to like a platform like Strava and just kind of dive into the different metrics and see like, okay, here was a spot where I went the slowest relative where I thought I would be able to do and decide like, if I can fix that, how many minutes is that going to, you know, improve me the next time? Mm. Uh, or like, if I look at like, I did this hundred mile race and I had stay like eight minutes of total non-moving time or stoppage time. Like how do I put myself in a position where I can get that down to four and then get essentially four minutes free where I don't have to run any faster to get that. And mm. there's, there's a lot of little things like that. I think um, just in ultra running, I think it's even more kind of pronounced since this sport just has a lot less kind of science and a lot less like research behind it. So in the last 10 years, just we've had a lot more interest from folks, which gives us more data sets to pull from to kind of figure out what is like the best training strategy. Because when I first got into the sport in 2010, it was basically like, well, you run as far as you can and try to do a lot of it on the weekends yeah. and then show up to these races. And, yeah. and that was kind of yeah. the, the leading strategy for the most part. Now you can kind of figure out when do I run fast intervals? When do I run long runs? When do I do all these other things? And that, I think that's been a, a big move forward in the last decade or so. It's funny though, because I it, just hearing this and, and not knowing a ton about ultra marathons, but I mean, it sounds like it's a super scientific approach yeah. to not only strategy and, and how you run, when you, you know, when you push, when you can rest, when you eat, when you pee, when you, I mean, all these things, <laughs> but like really, and then training and data, I mean, yeah. I mean, football, it's like, just go harder or yeah. like do more well, reps. You know, and that's the one thing that I wanted to get into is, is, you know, as athletes with all the technology that's out there, recovery has become a huge mm. part of uh, training. Mm -hmm. I mean, what's your recovery like after running something like a hundred miles? Yeah, that's a great question. Cause I think like a lot of times that's a big mistake. I think endurance runners make is they, they put so much energy and time into nailing a workout or executing a race. And they can sometimes forget that there's the, the half the piece to the puzzle of improvement is resting, recovery, and letting your body get stronger from that effort. So like for a race itself, I usually like to kind of break it down as to like, I have two weeks where I can just like let my body completely absorb the training stimulus or the race stimulus. And uh, I won't even think about forcing myself to run for a full week after a race like that. And if I feel good, you know, midweek and want to go out and run, I'll do it, but I'll be like, I'll stop as soon as I don't want to be out there anymore. Not going to force a pace, not going to put any strict kind of structure under it. And then the second week I might start adding a little bit more back, but still very kind of relaxed, just testing out kind of feeling where my body's at. And ultimately I'm kind of looking at it through kind of two lenses. One is like the physical recovery and the other is the mental recovery because sometimes you can find yourself say you have a really good race and a week later, you're just really motivated to get back into training and get back into another race. And it can be easy to kind of pull the trigger on a new training plan and then get halfway through and realize I should have taken an extra week or I should have, you know, ramped up a little slower. So I'm always kind of watching that and paying attention, like how motivated I am, am I to do another, another training cycle or uh, what type of race or training do I want to be preparing for? is, is some things that I try to focus on with, with the recovery side of things. What about preventative? I mean, from an injury standpoint, you know, there's, there's a lot of wear and tear on, on joints, you know, in, in, in this sport, what, what are the, the injuries that you've got to look out for? And then, you know, two, what are the things that you're doing to really to, uh, to, to strengthen your body to be resistant to those? 
Yeah. Hey guys, can I have just one minute? I'm going to go grab my, my charger to my battery is getting pretty low. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. For sure. I don't want to just give me like 30 seconds. You're good, man. You're good. The sound quality is also. No, I want to just go. Yeah, we just wrapping it up. Tight on them. I have both my hands out there. You need to put them up in there. She's like a boy. Load you up. It's like uh, onions. Yep. Sour cream and onion. You never had that onion. He's grabbing his trailer. We're having some technical issues on both. No, I'm, that's what I'm eating now. When Steve said sandwiches, it's like, give me one. I'm going to hit Eatsy's up on the way back. Sandwich from Eatsy's. They, they stayed in there. Sorry about that, guys. Yeah, no worries. Oh, no worries. Um, so injury prevention, I think, is what we were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what are the injuries that, that runners that manage this kind of distance um, deal with the most? And then how do you prevent those? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, you know, injuries are something where a lot of times runners, I think, look at is it's not a question of, uh, of if, it's a question of when. And some of that's just, you know, the sport is very – one dimensional at times where the mechanics are very similar. You can like overdevelop certain muscle groups and others can kind of underdevelop or just, you get this imbalance, which can creep up in, in hurt folks. A lot of like imbalances, I think where people get like tight hips, yeah. uh, stuff like that, that create, create issues or like they become kind of quad dominant and their posterior chain kind of gets a little bit weaker. So I think there's like, there's some strategies to try to put yourself in a position to avoid that or minimize your, the chances of, of uh, having something like that pop up to you on a, on a regular basis. And the two ones that I think actually three that I really like to use is um, one is kind of setting yourself up for success. So like at the la the end part of a training program for a long ultra marathon, you're just going to be running a lot of long, slow miles to get ready for that. And that's kind of the specificity component of it. But that doesn't mean you need to be doing that year round. You can kind of set yourself up to be a little more durable and a little more balanced by doing some shorter, faster speed workouts kind of early on using strength training. I like to do some of the more kind of traditional like lifting type uh, stuff. So like, like deadlifts, squats, uh, kettlebell swings and things like that, that are helpful, I think, in kind of keeping your muscles more balanced. And uh, those kind of set you up and give you this a little bit more of a robust, sturdy 
uh, development so that when you do get into kind of those longer, slower miles that are going to make you more susceptible to overuse injuries, you're just a little more stronger and a little more durable and kind of using those strategically can be helpful. Um, the other thing is just kind of knowing your own body and recognizing where your weaknesses are at. So for me, like earlier in my career, I had a lot of like poor ankle mobility and some tighter hips. So doing some mobility stuff that address kind of strengthening and loosening those areas were kind of key for my own development and sustainability in the sport. And uh, then the other one is just kind of like listening to your body. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about before, where like that rest component, just knowing like if I do a big buildup, I'm going to need to take some time to rest and recover from that before I kind of get back into to running again and paying attention to if you're actually ready to go out for another workout and being flexible enough where you know, even if you really want to do a specific workout on a specific day, if your body's not ready for it, you need to kind of honor that side of the puzzle or that piece of the puzzle and, and uh, let yourself kind of catch up and develop versus kind of break down and not recover. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's a component. I think people overlook in, in running is the strength training aspect and how important it is to, to actually get in the weight room and get yourself stronger because that actually can make you faster. Now that obviously the running, the specificity, like you were talking about, that's the important thing. But I want to go back to last August and as we wrap up here. I don't think we've done this justice, honestly. Yeah. A hundred miles. Yeah, I'd read it. World record <laughs> in August 19, yeah. 2019. All these years of work, all this time, all this effort, all this energy. What did that feel like to set the world record for a hundred mile race? And where was it again? It was at the, the Pettit Center, which is the Olympic training facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Okay. So yeah. it, it kind of was, I think it was a little more rewarding for me personally, just because I grew up and I first ran my, my first race in Wisconsin. So to be able to go back home and do it oh, in cool. a state-of-the-art facility like the Pettit Center was, was uh, about as good as it can get from that. But um, yeah, I mean, when I finished that, when I officially crossed 100 miles, it was, it was, it was, just a kind of a, I wouldn't say a relief, but like a release in the sense that like, I very much recognized as soon as I hit that point that this wasn't just a single race that I, that I got, that I did right. It was a build, a building project mm -hmm. for me for almost six years from when I did my first event like that in 2013. And, uh, you know, for me, I think the biggest accomplishment with that is less about the actual world record and more the fact that I kind of stuck with it and, kind of picked that goal. And there were times when it didn't look like it was going to be as easy as I thought to do, or it was going to be tough. And I had to kind of um, take a step back and kind of reanalyze the way I was going about training and structuring my seasons and things like that to kind of find a breakthrough. But for, for me, kind of the, the patience and just the dedication to it was what the, was the payoff that, that I kind of was able to stick to that program and do that. And um, the other thing I learned from that particular race that stood out in my mind was uh, usually with, for me, for hundred mile races and for a lot of people, you usually run a little faster in the beginning, just so you're fresh mentally, you're fresh physically, you bank a little bit of time and then you, you, you more or less are holding on for dear life a little bit at the end. And that was kind of my mindset with a hundred milers going into that race. And at that particular race, I ran the first 50 miles in five hours and 40 minutes and the second 50 miles in five hours and 38 minutes. So <laughs> I actually negative split it. Wow. And that, so running some, running some of my fastest miles at the very end was something I didn't necessarily know I was capable of, or think there was a strategy that I could implement successfully. And so doing that on top of kind of reaching that goal was kind of just like this, uh, almost like 
uh, kind of flood of emotions of like, just not really even knowing exactly what, what happened. But um, the funny thing with, with the hundred mile stuff is since I finished in under 12 hours, there's a 12 hour world record too. So I had to decide whether I wanted to uh, go after that and try to to break that as well or stop it. Yeah, I, re- I remember reading that. And it's like, <laughs> they're after they're finish, miles. finish line ready to celebrate. Yeah. So I, I mean, I slowed down quite a bit. I think I was running like between eight to eight and a half minute miles for that last 40 minutes, but it ended up, I ended up getting 4.88 extra miles tacked onto the hundred to, to break uh, what was my 12 hour world record going in. So wow. it was a, uh, it was kind of a, it was, it was interesting because I was so excited about breaking the 100 mile. And, and when you go into a race like that, you kind of have to think about the 100 mile and not even worry about the 12 hour because that's like something like, well, let's get the 100 mile done first and we'll worry about the 12 hour when it comes. Mm. So hitting the 100 mile and the goal and accomplishing that goal was a pretty big uh, shot of adrenaline and it just helped kind of make me want to stay out there for those next 40 minutes and, and uh, run slower albeit but uh still uh kind of keep going for that second goal was, was Man, there a point awesome. in that hundred mile race that, that the one we're talking about right now that there was a challenge that you're like i don't know if i'm gonna make it i mean is there anything that sticks out that was like the most difficult part of that race yeah i actually almost gave up i think on on the world record goal around mile 40 i'd gotten to a point where when i when I structure kind of the way I'm going to do these races on these short loops, I pick kind of a range of splits that I want to try to hit each lap. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it'll be like, um, when it's a 400 meter track, like it could be say like a minute and 40 seconds and a minute and 44 seconds. I'm trying to hit in between there. If I'm going too much under it, I know I need to scale back a bit or I'll, I'll end up giving back more than I gain. And if I'm starting to fall out on the back and I know I need to speed up if I want to accomplish my goal, and at mile 40, I was running maybe a couple seconds slower per lap than what I needed to stay in range. And a thought crossed my mind where I was just like, well, maybe it's just not my day to day. Maybe I just need to kind of settle down and, and run off, you know, a relatively fast hundred mile, but accept that it's not going to be my day to break the world record. And before I kind of decided to do that, I just, I kind of convinced myself, I'm just going to do two more laps in range. I'm going to speed up and get back in range, just do two more laps, see how that feels before I make any decisions. And, uh, you know, part of the reason why I made that decision, because I was thinking about kind of what I talked about before, and this is where I kind of had that bit of a breakthrough where I thought to myself, do I really want to kind of throw away the training that I did to get ready for this? Yeah. And then do I really want to like pass up on this opportunity I have? Cause the Pettit center is unique in that it's an Olympic training facility for speed skating and hockey and things like that. So it's kept at a constant 60 degrees. You just don't get an environment like that every day. Yeah. So I thought I got to give this, you know, a fair shake or I won't be able to justify the yeah. uh, dropping out. A little different and, than Phoenix in August. Yeah. <laughs> well, how, many people, yeah. how many people are there watching uh, you go through this? Um, yeah, it kind of ebbed and flowed throughout the day. I think by the end when I was getting close to, to 100 miles, there was, uh, there was probably at least a couple hundred people in the Pettit Center total between other racers, their crews, uh, family and friends, since it was kind of relatively close to home for me, I had, you know, family and friends that, uh, they, they kept track of what I'm up to and stuff and wanted to see, see, see me finish the race, especially if I was having a good day like that. So there was a decent group of people in there. It was, 
nothing like an NFL football stadium, but eleven hours of running. That's tough. Right, yeah. you, you would think the hardest thing, you know, especially starting off when the race starts off is that it's, it's not measuring yourself with your opponent against your opponent, more so measuring yourself that you're just competing against self. You know yourself better than anybody and you've prepared yourself mentally by yourself. But you, know, you know what I mean? There's, you have splits that you know you have to make and you can't look across the way at Tyler and, and be competitive you that mean, way. And that's, and it's, you mean that's look at me from behind if it's you exactly. and me? Exactly. Yep. <laughs> yeah, right. Yet another life but, lesson. Right there, but, it, right? but it's life lessons. That yeah, is a life lesson. Life Why lesson. look at the other person and what they're doing mm-hmm. instead of just stay focused on exactly what you're doing and what you want to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think like when you get into these long races too, like you don't necessarily know that that person's making the right decision. So if someone takes off running, what you know is unsustainable for you, 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 I think the right mindset there is I have to run what I know I can do. And if they're capable of running that fast and keeping it up, then, you know, more, more power to them. They're going to have a, this, this really, really good race. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of cases, they'll, what'll end up happening in those situations is the person will get out too fast and they end up coming back to you. And if you had chased them, you'd be coming back to the rest of the field as mm-hmm. well. So mm-hmm. you learn from that from experience. And I think just you know, realizing how, how much more painful these type of races are when you kind of go out ahead of what you should be doing. Uh, you know, even you can go out like too fast and hundred miles and it seems really easy in the beginning, but you know, by 70, 80, you pay for that dearly. So some of it's just kind of like fine tuning things over the course of a career. I think to know like, what is your capability? Where is the line for you not to cross or to stay up against? Uh, but you know, the sport's getting competitive now where you also have to keep an eye on what everyone else is doing and be aware of where they're at and kind of how they're trying to execute the race and where the spots are that you can maybe make a move versus when they're going to make a move and things like that too. Yep. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, I really want to get it on this boy. You said that is on if making a move, right. Is there ever any like conflict on the, on the track or is there ever like any, you know, Hey, Hey, he cut me off or he didn't let me pass. Or, I mean, is there ever any of that? Uh, not so much on the track um, or even really any of the ultra running stuff. It's a pretty like uh, chill group for the most part. Um, but you know, there's always like hurdles to get over with that. I mean, the biggest one for me on the track has just historically been if I'm doing, say, if I'm trying to run hundred miles within the context of a 24 hour race, there's going to be 20, 30, maybe 40 people out on that track going after their own goals. Mm-hmm. And if they're doing a 24 hour, they're going to be running quite a bit slower just because they're pacing themselves for a much longer, longer outing than mm-hmm. I am. And pro they have pretty good protocols on the track to make sure there's not a whole lot of a lot of issues with that, but you do, the passer does have to go on the outside lane. So if you have 30 people on the track and it starts to spread out, you kind of find yourself going into lane two on the turns, which does add some distance to it. Yeah. So uh, that's just one more thing. Like you control so much on those environments. You kind of almost just have to like accept like, okay, there is this one thing I can't control and I have to pace myself accordingly to kind of account for that. Uh, but you know, in terms of like people like intentionally getting in the way, like, uh, throwing elbows, talking trash, there's not a whole lot of that. That's something, uh, I, that's something many, Tyler would do, former yeah. wrestler. How oh, many elbows have sure. you thrown out oh, there? Oh, for sure. <laughs> so that's awesome. You're going to lane three if you want to pass me. <laughs> so what's next for you, Zach? I mean, you got the world record at 100 miles. What, what's next? What are you accomplishing? 
Yeah, so it's been kind of a goofy year with all the COVID-19 stuff. Most of the races had gotten canceled basically from the end of March until now. There's a few that have started to pop up. Uh, right now, I'm kind of, I, I actually ended up, I was going to do a 100-miler over in London in April, and that race got canceled late March. I ended up uh, kind of circling the wagons, and I ended up breaking the 100-mile and 12-hour treadmill world records from my house. <laughs> Oh. Yeah, back in May. Treadmill. So, oh, figure it out. Oh. <laughs> a whole different, whole different mindset uh, to add to the kind of like goofiness of these loop courses and things like that. But for me, the way, one thing I've learned the last few years that have, I think really helped me ultimately break the world record for hundred miles was that in order to kind of stay motivated and really excited about training that type of way is to step away from it from time to time. So what I like to do now that I'm out in Phoenix and I have access to such a variety of different trains is I'll break my year into kind of two halves where half the year I'll do more trail-based stuff and the other half of the year I'll do flatter, faster running type of stuff. So if, um, if we have races start pop up the second half of the year, I'll probably do something that's a little more trail-based and probably in the around the hundred mile distance though, that's tends to be what I normally focus on and uh, then kind of see how that goes and start planning planning for 2021, which, uh, I will, I am in the process of building a project. That'll be one of the bigger things I've done, which is they call it a transcon run where you run from San Francisco to New York. And, wow. uh, the current record for that is there's a guy named Pete Kosselnick. He averaged, I think it was like just over 72 miles a day for around six weeks straight where he just ran from San Francisco, slept in an RV and, uh, just kept kind of trucking along. <laughs> for, uh, for, so you're yeah. doing that is what you're saying. Yeah, I'm going to probably do it at some point next year. There's kind of two windows that you can feasibly do it because you want to make sure the weather is as deal as possible. And so you kind of have to either do uh, kind of mid to late spring or late summer, early fall. So there's kind of like a March and a September kind of window where you want to go after it. So I'm hopefully, hopefully we'll get some, some more clarity as to where everything's going to be in the next month or two. And then I can start kind of putting some specific dates down for that, but that'll be a, kind of a big project, something that's quite a bit different than what I've done historically, but it'll be, I think, a fun adventure to, to yeah. hopefully yeah. add to the list of things that, that I've been able to experience through the sport. That's yeah. awesome. As we wrap up, there's a question we'd like to end each episode with. Before we get to that question, though, where can people find you? You talked about your online coaching. Uh, if somebody's interested in picking up running or, I don't know, I'm, I'm assuming you work with beginners, but uh, where can we find more out about, more about you? Yeah, yeah. All abilities welcome for sure. Um, whether you're a beginner or experienced, but you can find most of the stuff I'm up to on my website at ZachBitter.com uh, or I'm most active on Instagram for social media, which is also at ZachBitter. Awesome. Yeah. If, I, if I'm going to start running, I'd definitely love to learn from the yes, right. 100 mile yeah, world absolutely, record. Right? <laughs> so the question we like to ask every guest, and I'll be interested to hear what you say with, with so many experiences in, in the running world, if you could go back to any point in your life and tell yourself one thing, where do you go and what do you tell yourself? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I would probably go back to somewhere between my last season in high school and my first season in college and just kind of remind myself that like running is a patient person's game. Be patient and keep putting in the work and, and good things will come. Uh, I think I've, generally done a good job of that but had I known that back then it might have been a little less stressful at some point <laughs> yeah. <in time>, so. right 
And life, life lesson nuggets yes, everywhere, everywhere. Episode. sprinkled out there. Yeah, yes, yes, man, that's awesome. Exactly. Appreciate having you all, man. I mean, I, listen, you, the mental strength that you have yeah. mm-hmm. uh, day in and day out, man, not just when you're running, but uh, in your everyday life, man, is really appreciated. And then uh, we want to thank you for coming on the show. Yeah, man. Uh, maybe some of that, you know, exercising and some of that running can rub off on these two. Matter of fact, Zach, let me tell you this. What happened. Seen a gorilla let, run let, a mile? Let me, <laughs> hey, let me show you, tell you what happened the other day. We had a 500 calorie challenge on the echo bike. Because 500 calories. I knocked that out in my first hour. <laughs> I was, that's what we were talking about before. We, we yeah, before you play. got here. We, before we you got here. Is yeah, don't how, worry about that. How little amount of time 500 calories takes compared to running yeah. 100 miles. Yeah. Okay. hundred. Yeah. Let's do the math here. hundred miles. How many calories do you think you burn in a hundred mile race? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I was running roughly nine miles per hour. So I was probably going through somewhere in the neighborhood of. We lost you. You say <laughs> just started from the beginning. Nine, of that nine, yeah. Nine, yeah, go ahead. Nine. Yeah. So I was probably, I averaged around nine miles per hour. So I was probably looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of like 800 to a thousand calories per hour. So all said and done, I was probably probably burnt like maybe twelve thousand to upwards to fourteen thousand calories. Knocked out our whole month challenge. Yeah. In one I, I know we said that was the last question. What do you eat after you just burn twelve thousand calories? Yes, a hog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the. the <laughs> the biggest steak within a 30 mile radius. Oh <laughs> my gosh. That's awesome. Well, man, we appreciate yeah. having you on, Zach. And uh, thanks again. And good luck, man, moving forward. Yeah, no, absolutely. Thanks a bunch for having me on, guys. It was, uh, it was an honor to be able to come on the show. Yeah, yeah thanks I appreciate for that. you, man. Uh,